All right, good morning. So glad to be here. Glad to see you all here. And I created an image for this sermon because this sermon deserves an image. Here's my image with the sermon title. <laughs> it's called The Dishes Can Wait. Let's pray. <laughs> uh, I've been thinking about this sermon for uh, a couple of months at this point and thought this is the perfect Sunday to talk about the dishes can wait. Uh, now, as many of you are aware, I turned 40 a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, I feel a few more creak. It's funny because all my friends now are turning 40. Uh, one of my friends this past week was his 40th birthday. So I gave him a call. He lives in, uh, he just moved from Idaho to Minnesota. He says he's ice fishing. He's like, you want to come visit and go ice fishing? I'm like, yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> okay, I see a bunch of people know. Have, have you gone ice fishing, Ted? Super Bowl. That's exactly what he told me. He didn't sell it. He's like, you want to come visit? We'll go ice fishing. He's like, you basically just sit there and do nothing and just wait and don't really catch much. Has that? Well, I guess you drink beer, too. I'm gluten-free, so there's not too much gluten-free beer. Uh, not, uh, uh, I tried it once. I had the worst headache, uh, so I do not recommend it. Uh, but I was talking to him, and he said, I was like, well, how's it been so far? I missed his birthday by a day. It was a day late. I'm like, how's it been turning 40? He's like, you know what? I woke up yesterday, and I, my back was spasming, so I spent pretty much the entire day for my 40th birthday in bed. <laughs> Welcome to 40. <laughs> but that's not going to happen to any of us, right? No, because we are all about longevity. I told you, biohacking. And let me just, okay, one more thing, another tangent. I'm just on a roll here this morning. Uh, there's a doctor that I follow, Dr. Mark Hyman. Has anyone ever heard of him before? All right, love his podcast, read a bunch of his stuff. And he has been researching this topic about longevity. He calls it health span. So there's lifespan, which is how long you live. But then there's health span, which is how long you're healthy for. I tell people, like I was telling my sister last night, I'm like, hey, uh, she's like, how long do you want to live until? I said, 120. She's like, all right, I'll meet you in heaven. I'll see you. I'm, I'm out of here. So lifespan, I get it. Not, we don't all want to live to 120, but health span, who doesn't want to be healthy for as long as possible? Well, he has a new book that comes out on the 21st of uh, February. I have already pre-ordered it. Uh, I'm so, I've been, he talked about this over a year ago. It's called Young Forever, and he's been studying how people all around the world are able to stay healthy into much, much older in age. So if you're looking for a good book recommendation or pre-order, Young Forever, Dr. Mark Hyman. Now, growing up and in seminary, actually, I remember my professor, and I was in my late 20s, he would always talk about, well, when you turn 40, that's considered halftime. You have the first half, and then you have the second half of life. And this idea has always intrigued me. Oh, okay, so when I turn 40, and at that point it was a couple of years away, when I turn 40, it's going to be halftime. And I'm going to move into the second half, the second phase of my life. And I've been doing uh, a whole bunch of reading. There's, there's lots of books, lots of literature on these uh, two halves of life, the first half, the second half. So I've been studying about halftime. And I don't, I don't know, maybe I just mentally am uh, I'm getting older now. I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe I'm becoming more philosophical as uh, like fine wine, I like to believe. But I've been thinking quite a bit about, well, what does it mean for me now entering into this second half, or if I'm going to live to 120, the second third of my life? <laughs> Uh, there's another book. I'll give you another book recommendation. Uh, so this is one of my favorite books about the two halves of life. 
Uh, it's called Falling Upward. It's by Richard Rohr. Uh, I read everything by Richard Rohr. I absolutely love him. Uh, the subtitle is Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. And here's how one review describes the book, and I, I, I thought it's beautiful. Rohr likens these two tasks, or these two halves of life, to building and filling a container. So in the first half of life, we construct our container using tried and tested rules, boundaries, and guides. Then in the second half of life, we move beyond the container and we discover what it was meant to hold. <laughs> Let me break it down for you and describe what this looks like from a story, a conversation that I had a couple of weeks ago. And I will call this story the playground conversation. Now, we go to a lot of playgrounds. We have a five and a three-year-old. So we move all around Westchester to find the best playgrounds around. Reese loves scouting out new playgrounds, checking out their slides and all the different fun things that they have there. What happens is you go to a playground, you let your kid run loose and burn off all their energy, and hopefully by the end of the time, once they're done, you put them back in the car, they're exhausted and ready for bed on time so that you can have a few minutes to relax and do the dishes. All these other kids are running around, and sometimes Reese will find new friends to play with. So we were at a park right around the corner from our house a few weeks ago, and Reese and Kit, they both latched onto this kid. Uh, his name was Teddy, and they were chasing Teddy around the park, like, I love you, Teddy. Can I give Teddy a hug? I'm like, you met Teddy five minutes ago. <laughs> I mean, they're great. It's so much fun to watch how quickly they become friends. Meanwhile, we get a little more jaded as life, and we're, eh, but kids, Teddy, five minutes. He's my best friend, BFF. And as the kids were running around, I started talking to the father of Teddy. And I found out that Teddy's father grew up right around the corner uh, from where the park was. So he actually grew up on the street that we currently live in. And he's like, hey, I have great memories of that block. I remember growing up here, coming to this park. And we got into a conversation about high school reunions. High school reunions, let me... Here's what I'm talking about with the two halves of life. You remember when you were in high school and it was all about popularity? There were all these things that we thought were so important in life. And you had all these different cliques, these different groups. And sometimes you liked your group. Other times you wanted to be a part of that group over there. And so you would do what you could to impress other people so that you could. It's like Mean Girls. You ever watch this movie? We were talking about high school reunions, and Farrah's like, no, 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 I don't watch that stuff. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about high school reunions, and it was so funny because we, we both have gone to some reunions. When you go to these reunions, all the stuff that seems so important in high school, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> People that you weren't friends with, you actually realize you have way more in common with them than you had realized 15, 20, however many years ago because you were so busy building that container, thinking this is what's important, this is what matters, this is how I'll gain in popularity or be successful or whatever it possibly means. Then you enter the second phase of life. You go to the high school reunion, you realize none of that really meant anything. It didn't carry us through. It didn't actually bring us the thing. At, at the time, it seemed so important, but then you realize you spent all this time and energy and effort and emotion putting things into your container that were never really meant to be there anyway. And that's what the second half of life, according to Richard Rohr and, and many other people who write about this, that's what it's about. 
emptying your container of the stuff that really doesn't matter and filling it with that which does. And as I am transitioning into the second half or second third, I'm going to call it, one of the things that I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to trade speed for depth. In the first half of life, so much is about speed, and it's very easy to get caught up in a life of speed, is it not? Jamming as much as we possibly can, going as quickly as we can so that we can get on to the next task, the next thing that we have to do. I'm kind of done with that because I've seen what it does, and it creates a lot of stress and anxiety within me. It creates a lot of stress and anxiety within our culture. So for me, where I see my life heading is, well, how can I trade speed for depth? How can I live with greater awareness and actually experience more of the life that I am living? Because it's one thing to live, and then it's another thing to live. You know what I'm talking about here? It's one thing just to kind of live on the surface and skim the surface, but then it's another thing to actually experience that which you are living. And there's a story of Jesus, which I thought about this story for a really long time, and I think it beautifully illustrates trading speed for depth. And it shows up in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Pick it up in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Soon afterward, where was Jesus? He was doing miracles like you do in Capernaum. And so after this, after being in this area for a while, he said, you know what? I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go somewhere else. So he travels to Nain, another city. He goes with not only his disciples, but he has a large crowd of people who are following him because they've been watching. They've witnessed his life and they want to keep seeing more because there's something about the way in which Jesus is living and they want it. Uh, so I have a map for us. We see Capernaum all the way up there on the top, right around the Sea of Galilee. And he travels, Jesus travels down from Capernaum with this large posse, this group of people, this entourage, down to Nain, uh, which would have been about a 25, maybe 30-mile walk, depending on which route he took. So in the world at this time, any idea how long this would have taken? About a day or two. Not 20 minutes, or if you're a speedster, 15 minutes. <laughs> About a day or two. Depending on how many times they stopped, maybe they would have walked through the night. Sometimes you would have walked through the night, especially with a large crowd like that. You would have just kept on going. We're going to keep pushing ahead. It would have taken a day or two to arrive here. So we continue. As he approached the town gate, remember, after traveling 25 miles, you're tired, probably a bit dirty, day or two, maybe you camped out one night, you have a large group of people that are following you, but as uh, Jesus approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. So there was a funeral. Uh, Jewish funerals at this time would have taken place at dusk. So it probably would have been around nightfall when Jesus arrives at this town. And the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. This woman has nothing. She's a widow, her husband has died, and now her son has died as well. She's grieving. She's lost her family. What will the future mean for her? A woman without a husband, without a son now, in this day and age, she would have been relying upon public charity to survive. She's lost everything. Jesus sees this, 
And she also had a large crowd from the town with her. Now when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. This phrase, his heart went out to her, is from the Greek word, splagnitsomai. Can you say splagnitsomai? Say that 15 times fast, and try to get a friend to say it 15 times fast this week as well. Uh, what this means is, his heart went out to her, but it also can be translated uh, to be moved in the inward parts. Have you ever experienced this before? You witness something, you see someone going through something, it's heart-wrenching. And something within you, it, it, it's moved within you. Maybe tears come to your eyes. Maybe you've sat in seats like this before and you've watched a movie on the big screen and there is a scene, an experience, a conversation. You can't help but your eyes well up a little bit or there's something within you and you feel for that character. Maybe it's a friend that you have and they've just described to you what they're going through in life. Another way of uh, translating this phrase, to feel compassion. And not just feeling it, but actually being moved by it. Remember, we have just traveled 25 miles. So after the end of a long, dusty, difficult journey, what would you want to do when you see your destination right there? We're at the town gate. Maybe you can see exactly where it is that you will be staying for the next week. Uh, here's a picture of the Pittsburgh skyline. Love the Pittsburgh skyline. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, Steph has family in Pittsburgh. We'll make the trek out there. It takes about eight hours with kids, Meh, maybe a little bit longer. How much longer till we get there? I need a bathroom break. Uh, so a trip like this, it, de it depends on how many times we stop, but it takes quite a few hours. Whenever I see the Pittsburgh skyline, I know we are almost there. I don't care who has to go to the bathroom. I don't care who's hungry. I don't care who's on the side of the road that I pass. All I'm thinking about is getting to my destination. Splagnitsomai, forget about it. The only thing that's moving me is getting the car that I'm driving to the place that we'll be staying. So here you are, you're at the end of a 25-mile trip. You can see the town gate. You can see your hotel. Here's what you would be wanting to do. I mean, this is what's on your mind, is it not? Oh, what Netflix show can I get caught up on? Or how about this one? You just want to plop down in the bath, glass of wine, rest your feet, clean off all the dirt, the dust. Or how about this one if you're staying at a hotel? How much room service can I order? Your mouth, you know, oh, Nain, whew, you know what? They have the best hibachi spot. I can't wait to do some hibachi takeout. Don't you think this is what Jesus would have been thinking? But we're told that he's moved with compassion. He sees what this woman is going through, and his heart goes out to her. He says, don't cry. The story continues. Uh, he went up, he touched the beer they were carrying him on, and the bear stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. I love this. The bear stood still. Imagine Jesus walks up, and all of a sudden he's, he, he touches this, this casket, or he touches the board that the sun. Imagine this. Imagine if you're a pallbearer, you're carrying a casket, and someone comes up and just places their hand. You'd be like, what in the world? I love this detail. 
it's so real and raw. Because if you're here and you're witnessing this, remember, there's a large crowd that's there for the funeral. There's also a large crowd that's following Jesus. If you're witnessing this, you're kind of in shock. No one does this. Would you go up and stop a funeral procession? You might stop a wedding. I know some of you. But you're not going to stop a funeral procession. And yet this is exactly what Jesus does. And then he says, young man, get up. And so the dead man sat up and began to talk. Hey, what's for dinner? I'm hungry. (laughs) And so Jesus then gave him back to his mother. And everyone was filled with awe and they praised God. They said, a great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And so the crowds continued to grow and grow. Like, whoa. God's amazing. Look at what look at what we just witnessed. There's something about this Jesus. There's something about his life. Now, here's what I think this tells me. This tells all of us about Jesus. Number 1, Jesus lived with an acute awareness of what was happening around him. Remember, trading speed for depth. When you're trying to move Maybe not you're not even trying, but when you're moving as quickly as you possibly can from one thing to the next, you're on the surface. And there's little awareness of what's happening around you. There's little awareness of what others are going through. Jesus, he moved with intention. He moved a bit slower And it allowed him to then be aware of this woman, of what she was going through. He wasn't so focused on where he was going, on his destination, that he missed this tragedy that was happening in front of him. But he was moving with intention and slowness that he had this acute awareness of what was happening around him. And then number two, uh, Jesus also lived with a deep awareness of what was happening within him. Here's what I find fascinating about Jesus. There's times when he will stop a funeral procession and he will raise a young man from the dead. And then there's other times when Jesus withdrew, when he went to be by himself, to spend time recalibrating, praying, being in silence, in solitude. Jesus lived with an acute awareness of what was happening within him. He knew how much he had in the tank, He knew when he still had gas in the tank and when he had nothing left within him. How do you get there? By moving at a certain speed. Not blurring life by going from one thing to the next, but every step he took was a step of intention. Now, our sermon title for this morning is The Dishes Can Wait. Let me tell you the story of how this phrase, this sermon title, came about. A few months ago, I had this epiphany while I was cleaning the dishes at home. And typically what happens, we have dinner, and then the kids have a little bit of time to play, then they have their bath, they go to bed. And in that time when they're playing, or hopefully cleaning up their toys so they don't leave a hurricane, a tornado, looks like it went through the house half the time, 
But as they are cleaning after dinner, I'll be there washing the dishes. And I'll kind of look out and I'll see them playing in the other room. There are some times when I see Steph and she'll be with them. She's playing with them. Maybe she's reading them a book. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I wish I was there playing with them too. Then there's other times I'll be washing the dishes. They'll come running up to me and be like, hey, Daddy, can you read us a book? And normally my response was always, no, I'm doing the dishes. I don't want to have to do them once you go to bed. That's my time. I just want to sit here and do what I want to do. And, and there's, there's some nights where you just have to do it because you need those however long you have just to decompress. But one night I was there and I was thinking, am I going to miss out on this 15, 20 minute window of them wanting to play? Am I going to look back on this time and say, you know what? I have 15, 20 minutes when they want to play with me. And yeah, I could sacrifice and do the dishes later, but no, no, no. I want my time. So I'm going to just stay here cleaning the dishes while they're in the other room wishing that I was playing with them. And this phrase started coming to my mind, the dishes can wait. Go play with your kids. Go read a book. And it's almost like this has become a mantra for me now for the past couple of months. And it's true for when I'm trying to get the dishes done before they go to bed, but I'm finding that this expands into all areas of life as well. The dishes can wait. I mean, it raises two questions for us. First is, how much space in our lives do we allow for interruptions? Then a second question, how much space do we allow for our hearts to be moved with compassion? We're here this morning because we want to know, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus with our lives? Many of you consider yourselves Christians. You're a follower of Jesus. We read this story, and sometimes we just look at the miracle, and we're like, oh, that's an amazing miracle. I could never raise someone from the dead. This story has nothing for me. Or it just proves, again, it reinforces our view about who Jesus was, and that's a good thing. But if the story just ends there, I think we're missing the invitation of the story. And the invitation of the story is that, like Jesus, we would have space in our lives. We would have space in our hearts so that we can be like Jesus, splag, no, splag, oh my gosh, woo! Splagnitzomide, just turned it into a verb. <laughs> so that we could be moved with compassion as well. How much space do we allow for our hearts to be moved with compassion? If we're being honest with ourselves, How much space in our lives do we have for this? To live with an awareness of what's happening around us, of what the people around us are going through, some of the needs that are happening right in front of our faces. But sometimes we're moving so fast, lightning speed, that we miss an opportunity to share love or grace or to extend a hand to someone in need. I want to tell you the Martin story. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had a professor, Martin Sanders. He taught all of the pastoral development courses. There was one night, because we had night classes, uh, or actually this would have been an all-day class, I think. Normally those classes went from about 9 till about 5 uh, in the afternoon. 
So we had, he had been teaching all day. We were sitting in class all day. And me and one of my friends, we were talking about some of the material that he had presented. And we had a few questions. Remember, this was a pastoral development course. So the questions that we had, they were very personal to us and what we were going through. And some of the material that he presented, we were just wondering, well, what does it mean for us? And, and how do we work through some of the things that he's talking about? After class, we walked up into his office. We knocked on his door and said, hey, we have a couple of questions for you. We just want to talk through a little bit more the things that you're teaching. We want to know how we can apply it to our lives and how we can kind of walk through this. We're sitting there at his desk, and all of a sudden, Martin looks at his watch, and he's like, oh, I told my wife I'd be home by 6 o'clock. He said, hold on a minute, guys. I have to make a phone call. So right there at his desk, he picks up his phone, calls his wife, and he says, hey, I'm with two guys right now. And I'm going to be about 15, 20 minutes late. This is a really important conversation that we need to have right now. I will be home soon. He hung up, continued the conversation. Now, how do you think that made us feel? Like we mattered. Like we were important. Like the conversation, the things that we were going through, we were wrestling with, it was worth his time. He was willing to be interrupted for that conversation. Now, he wouldn't do it all the time. I know Martin, and he had very, very strict boundaries. He was really good with boundaries. But for some reason, that night, he said, I'm going to help these guys out. And we walked away from that conversation holding our heads a little higher. Yeah, he sees something in us. There's something about this conversation that he thought was really valuable and important that he was going to allow himself to be interrupted. How much space do we have in our lives for interruptions? How much space do we have for our hearts to be moved by the needs around us? So let's make this really practical for us this morning. And I want to offer you two ways to create that space. The first way, you need a daily reminder. For me, it's been this mantra. I'll repeat this to myself all the time throughout the day. The dishes can wait. Every single night when we're done with dinner and the kids run off into the other room and I see the dishes stacking up, piling up there in the sink, I almost, I, I remind myself, the dishes can wait. Let's read a book. They can go have their bath, and I can do some dishes during that time, or I'll finish them after they go to bed. So I have this daily reminder, this mantra. Maybe I should tattoo it on my arm, or I should put it as a bumper sticker. The dishes can wait. What's it for you? What's a daily reminder for yourself to create room in your life for those interruptions? to create space for your heart to be moved, or your heart's not so rigid, but that it's flexible and soft and able to respond to what's happening around you. And then here's a second way. Leave some margin. I know how you are. I'm the same way. I try to squeeze as much out of a day as possible because there's so much to do, and that list keeps going on and on and on. For every three things you cross off, you probably add five more things on that list. 
Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> Let's leave some margin. The list can wait. The to-dos can wait. They'll get done eventually. Maybe it'll take a little bit longer. But eventually, we'll get there. We'll cross them off the list, and then there'll be a few more things to add anyway. It's never-ending. Your to-do list will never be finished. The house will never be perfected the way you want it to be. Ugh. It's life. It's life. Remember, the two halves of life. In the second half of life, we move beyond the container and discover what it was meant to hold. How sad would it be if we come to the end of our lives and we realize that we have been filling our life, filling our container with the things that really didn't bring satisfaction, the things that didn't bring peace. What truly matters in life? Family? Relationships? Time for yourself to play and have fun? Whenever you hear the stories of people who look back on their life, their regrets, you know what? I wish I had given more time to building relationships. It's one of the top regrets. I wish I had allowed myself more fun and I hadn't been so focused on this or that, but actually gave myself permission to enjoy and have fun. I think the crowds wanted to be around Jesus because he was a person of joy. He felt deep emotion. You're not going to follow someone if they're this very rigid, boring person. There was something about the life of Jesus that others wanted. And as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that's who I aspire to become. Someone filled with life. Someone moving through life with intention and space for my heart to be moved so I can respond accordingly to the needs that I see around me. So that more love, joy, grace, and healing can spread to the world. The dishes can wait. Create your own mantra. Remind yourself daily and then leave some margin to allow your heart to be moved. <laughs>